the Cajun flavor in particular, very delicious. They don't have it anymore. They're like, I can't oh, find it. Yeah. Really? That is an obstacle. Yeah. <laughs> However, will you overcome this obstacle? <laughs> Welcome to Obstacles and Opportunities with Lowell and Julie, sharing stories, empowering mindsets. Olympic basketball player Ross Beckering is here. Ross is a born and raised Southern Albertan with a Dutch passport. He represented the Netherlands playing three-on-three basketball at the Tokyo 2020 Games. After we talk about how the 1999 school shooting at W.R. Myers and Tabor impacted him, we get a nice overview of Ross's life with fun stories and pearls of wisdom sprinkled throughout. We chat basketball, family, life, career, inspirations, and living between Europe and Canada while playing pro basketball and pursuing a career. So many golden nuggets from Ross and his elite athlete mindset today. To name a few, the power of connection and community, the value of encouraging others, no matter how small and insignificant it seems, the gift of a challenge, and that discomfort is directly connected to growth. Ross is so authentic and articulate, and it's too bad this isn't a visual medium, because when he throws his head back in genuine laughter, it's the most delightful and contagious thing ever. Ross is currently a high school teacher in Lethbridge and expecting his first child with his amazing wife, Carly. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Oh, hello. How are you? Good. How are you, Mr. Ross Beckering? Not too bad. So nice to meet you, kind of in real life-ish. Yes, nice <laughs> to meet you guys too. I followed a bit of your story and talked to a lot of people about you guys, but it's really nice to meet you. Yeah, ditto to you. I went to school with half your cousins, and my closest connection, I think, is that your cousin Matthew was my grade 12 grad date. Nice. Yeah, Matthew's yeah. awesome. Yeah. yeah. So you grew up in Tabor, right? I did. My whole child was in Tabor, went to high school there, went to W.R. Myers. Were you there at the time of the shooting? I was in grade six and the junior high is attached to the high school. So mm-hmm. that's still pretty crazy day, even mm-hmm. for me. Yeah. A lot of things that went down that day. It's hard to believe that things like that can happen. But at the same time, it's a good reminder that there's a lot of tragedy and stuff in the world as well. So it's kind of an interesting part of my childhood for sure. Well, that's actually an interesting place to pause for a second. For those who aren't aware, this is big news in Southern Alberta. It made news across the world too. But from your perspective, what did happen that day and how did that impact you? From my recollection, I guess, there was a shooting at the high school in Tabor when I was in grade six. Unfortunately, one high school student ended up being killed and two others were injured. The way it went down that afternoon is, from my personal experience, I was in, I think it was a hobbies class in grade six, and it was like an hour period. And at the end of the period, the teacher said, hey, you know what, we're just going to extend our class today. You guys are just going to go for another hour. We're just trying to figure some stuff out. So they kind of kept it from us. The high school and the junior high are attached. And I'm looking out the window and I see all the high school students like kind of streaming across the streets, across the field. And you're kind of thinking like, what's going on? Is there some type of assembly outside? You really are pretty ignorant that age. I would argue I'm pretty ignorant still today. But uh, (laughs) I remember seeing two high school boys and they had tears in their eyes. Mm. I get home from school and still don't really know what's going on, just completely in the dark on this. And I get home and my mom is in tears and she's like really distressed and, you know, she gives me a hug. And I find out what's happened and my mom just can't wait to see all of her kids. Yeah. All the energy and the chaos that kind of ensued in the following week or two weeks. My dad was on the school board at that time. And I remember reporters phoning our house to try to get comments and messages and kind of disregarding the kind of humanity aspect of that, like giving people space and 
I remember my younger sister answering the phone once and they're kind of badgering her and she was in grade five and she getting pretty emotional about it. Like, hey, I don't want to talk to anyone. You know, (laughs) I'm 11 years old, right? It was a pretty unbelievable period for Tabor. I remember a lot of positive things coming out of it as well. I remember Reverend Lang and, and him speaking at our school and him talking about forgiveness and the example he led was kind of his, his tour across Canada with that message. Because it was his son, Jason, that was killed, right? Yes, his son, Jason, was the one that was killed. And I think just the conversations that every person from Tabor at that period had with friends and family and, mm-hmm. and trying to make meaning out of this meaningless event. Yeah. It was pretty big influence, I guess, on myself going forward. I remember thinking about this for years. I still now and then kind of reflect back on it, but it was probably throughout my whole high school time that I would flash back to those moments and and try to make sense of it and and think about the effects that you have on people and Mm -hmm. what people are capable of and all those big Mm -hmm. questions. It's pretty surreal that that was part of my childhood. Absolutely. For sure. Yeah. I still really struggle with how people can come to some of those decisions, but I think it's a path and it's a combination of things. And one of those things is the lack of connection and the lack of respect by fellow people. Isolation and stuff like that can mm-hmm. be pretty dark. For Absolutely. Sure. And seeing the pain that that isolation and the disconnection people can have from themselves and others in community, how that can continue to lead to more hurt. So... Mm-hmm. The sense that we need to keep working on community, keep working on belonging, keep working on helping people find that meaning and purpose in our society so that there's not this bigger pain that happens. No, absolutely. I think life has a certain level of suffering and tragedy that's inevitable. And if you can do something or live your life in a way that minimizes that, or at least doesn't add more to it, then I think that's a pretty powerful source of meaning. And I think hopefully people can latch onto that message again. I do think there's a little bit of a meaning crisis right now. So it's an important message that needs to be brought up again. Yeah. Mm. One of the things that happened in Tabor was a sense of community. Right, We saw this from those of us who around Alberta and around Canada and the world saw that the community came around, the families came around each other to create that healing and the movement forward. And thinking of that right now too, in this time of chaos and disconnection and polarity and all of these different ideas right now, if we can come together in community. So you're right. I agree that there's some lessons that we need to learn. There's always going to be pain and suffering, but it's the community that we can come around each other and support each other through that hard time. Yeah. It's like you got to wade through a mess anyways. You can't avoid that. Being able to do that process with someone by your side or just surrounded by people that genuinely want the best for you might make that a little more bearable, you know? Otherwise, I think the path you go down is not a positive one. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. We're not meant to do this journey alone. No, No, I I absolutely can't. I know that. (laughs) I mean, I have a lovely wife who's been the firm foundation for me for a lot of things. And Uh, that's one of the things that I really respect about you guys. You provide such a positive example of what it means to be a couple. And I think in some ways, it's a simple thing in terms of being committed to someone and showing that basic love and respect. But in other ways, it's incredibly rare sometimes and how strong it can be to be that example for others and to show them what a relationship can be like. So I think that's super cool and needed. And I smile when I think of the way you guys went through different challenges and different journeys and adventures in life because that's a really positive life in the community and I think it's been bigger than that for sure because you guys' reach is so far. Uh, Well, thank you. You need to tell us about your wife now. Your love story, please. (laughs) So my wife, Carly, is actually also a fellow Southern Albertan. Mm -hmm. So she grew up in the Grassy Lake area and we knew each other since we were about six playing soccer, but we started going to school together around grade eight. Was it love at first sight at age six? (laughs) No, but uh, it is, it is kind of funny. We were kind of like in the same social circles. And I mean, it's Tabor. It's not, not that big of a community. <laughs> we knew each other really well. We were good friends. 
long story short, I, you know, I did like her in high school. I was just busy with other things. And I think there's also a little cowardice there, a little bit of shyness, a little bit of, you know, trying to sort out your feelings as that young boy. Yeah. Actually being a high school boy. <laughs> yes, exactly. Normal experiences, but we never had a chance to date then. She went to school in the States. I went to school in Calgary and then she moved back to Canada and was in Calgary for my last year of university. And it was at that time that I had a chance to begin dating her, which was awesome. Mm. And now we've been married for nine years. Mm. Wow. We just bought our first house in Lethbridgeshire about a year ago. Ooh. She's 24 weeks pregnant with our first child. Oh, and congrats. It's like a lot of really, really <laughs> cool things that we wanted as a couple and equal parts exciting and scary. Yeah. Big year for you. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So she's currently working as a family doctor here in Lethbridge. So she oh. works with maternity associates doing low-risk obstetrics. Okay. And then she also actually does a few shifts in Tabor. So she's still got the connection to oh. the community there. And she really likes what she does. Oh, awesome. I'm just incredibly lucky to be with her. Uh-huh. She's been such a good rock for me. She just provides so much interesting context to life. Sometimes mm. I am a little more narrow with my focus and she's just able to take in kind of the wholeness that life is. So that's, that's yeah. awesome. Aw, she sounds super cool. Well, hopefully we yeah. can bump into you guys in real life sometime. We did, I see. saw you from a distance, I'm pretty sure, in real life, because you're about six foot a million, right? So you stand out <laughs> <laughs> at Japanese Gardens area. It was like the first day of school for you guys, I think. You were doing a staff thing. We were. That's what your colleague, my friend, Janine, told me. But we were there for an adapted sport thing. And yeah. I just saw you from a distance and I was like, oh, that's got to be Ross Beckering. <laughs> <laughs> I just about yelled, Ross, but then I, I held my tongue. <laughs> you should have. It would have been nice to meet you. So. <laughs> yeah. I did regret it afterwards for what it's worth. <laughs> oh, well, we still got connected. So <laughs> yes. One of the things our boys tried there was wheelchair basketball, which was exciting. Have you ever tried wheelchair basketball? Yeah. So kind of odd story. I used to rent a place right by the old YMCA just in London Road area. Okay. Me and my wife lived there for a couple of years. So I would go once in a while just to shoot around at the old YMCA and, and just keep the dream alive when I wasn't really playing basketball. You know, it's just a good yeah. outlet, good stress release. And one time I went to go shoot around and there's usually nobody there, but the gym was booked. I was like, oh, like, are they using the whole court? And they're like, actually the Wheelchair Basketball Association, I'm not sure at what level this association was, but they're having kind of like an open session for people to come from the community and, and try it out. So I was like, I was going to be here anyways for an hour. I went down there and I was like, hey, you guys got a chair big enough for me? Like, can I try this? I've never done it before. Like, if you guys don't mind helping me out. And sure enough, they were really friendly, really accommodating. I got to play for like an hour or at least whatever play means. I didn't really know exactly yeah. what I was doing. And it was a lot of fun, like just connecting with the people who were organizing it, who were like pretty established and experienced. I can't remember yeah. specific names, but they were really good. They started off kind of gently letting me kind of move around freely and yeah. shooting was it really hard to shoot or how did you find that transition yeah it was it was really it was really challenging you know I like learning new things so it was kind of fun one advantage for you is probably that even in the chair you're probably about the same height as the rest of us average people playing <laughs> stand-up <laughs> basketball my, my, long, yeah, my long arms were definitely beneficial so yeah. but about halfway through I remember like I was starting to get the hang of a few things and the one guy I think was kind of like okay now I'm gonna kind of let him know how the game works right and he was not like for those of you who have played wheelchair basketball before, and I might explain this poorly, but the way they can like obstruct movement is incredible. So like you're just trying to get down the court or like to move to be open for a pass or a shot or a fast break. And they can use their chair as a way to kind of like make you go around them or slow you down or completely stop you. And this one particular guy, he was having fun with me for five minutes because he knew like I could probably take it. And he, I wasn't able to do anything. Like I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't, you know, every pass, he would like interrupt the rhythm of, of my movement and like, 
he's pretty much letting me know like hey there's a few other levels to this there's game some other stuff. Yeah. message received no kidding well not to mention like actually trying to wheel yourself around and manage the basketball and see where everybody is and avoid getting blocked or whatever <laughs> it's really like a crazy combination of coordination and skill and strength your hands the endurance of your arms like i said the the quick reflexes and then mm. to spin one way but then manipulate your body another way and it was yeah. it's cool that's like cool to expose yourself to oh super to different cool talented, so. yeah we yeah. actually chatted with on the podcast we chatted with michael frogley who was a wheelchair basketball player and now coach and i had totally assumed that the nets were shorter and everything because they mm -hmm. were chairs and they are not like this nope. and i thought the balls were smaller also because they could just like catch it in a palm like they made yeah. it look like a baseball it's very impressive just crazy grip strength yeah it's nuts anyways yeah. basketball so you made history with basketball tokyo 2020 was the first time that three-on-three -three basketball was in the olympics yes yeah so it's like a relatively new sport i think it actually was founded in about 2010 and then the last oh. five years or so, they started kind of pouring a little more money into it and developing it as like an international game leading up to the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. And then it was delayed for a year, like everything else. Yeah. And yeah, it made its debut this past summer. It's kind of a totally different brand of basketball. And I got to be a part of it, which is still surreal. So Oh, yeah, that's amazing. So you represented the Netherlands. Were you born in the Netherlands or how Dutch are you? How Dutch? Yeah, very Dutch. But <laughs> I, was I don't mean spending money-wise. I mean <laughs> actual cultural heritage. I like black licorice. I like raisin buns. I like, no. Okay, so um, you're 100% Dutch. Good. Okay. Yes, yes. I have had a Dutch passport since 2003, but I was born in Canada. So my okay. father was born in the Netherlands and immigrated as a child to Canada with his family. And my mother, her parents immigrated from the Netherlands in 55, and she was born in oh. Canada in 56. So I kind of have okay. Dutch roots on both sides growing up. You know, Ome and Opa on both sides. The culture was very present, you know, with big events, with soccer and stuff was always groups of Southern Alberta Dutch people getting together to cheer on the boys. And yeah. yeah, so it was always a big part of my identity, a big part of my childhood. Do you speak Dutch? I can now. Yeah, I can speak like pretty decent Dutch. I can wow. do interviews. And my big accomplishment was this past summer, I did a podcast for an hour in Dutch. Oh, wow. So that was fun. It was a little bit oh. stressful, but. Can uh... you say something in Dutch right now? You could say some basic things. I even teach my students like Huyamorka is like good morning, you know, or Dankjewel is like thank you. You could say like het is heel leuk om jou te ontmoeten. It's really nice to meet you. Can you say welcome to Obstacles and Opportunities with Lola and Julie? <laughs> <laughs> so it would, it would be like welcome is welcome. And then I would literally just say the name of the show in English, you guys' name. So it wouldn't be, that wouldn't be stuff, quite you know? as impressive. Okay. I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't be impressing too many people. I was going to let you steal the show though at the beginning of the uh, <laughs> show there, but. <laughs> Short answer, I guess, is I've had a Dutch passport since 2003. And because of that, I was able to play for the national team. And okay. it was pretty neat to represent that part of my identity. Yeah, that's amazing. So you started in Tabor. When did you start playing basketball? I was always around it as a kid, but I really didn't play organized basketball until grade seven. Okay. So that would have been 13 years old. Okay. But I was at a much younger age just watching my sisters and my brother and playing outside. And we had a big family. So my parents, you know, get out of the house and entertain yeah. yourself kind of deal. <laughs> Went to school in Tabor, ended up attending the University of Calgary afterwards and played basketball there for five years. After that, I went overseas and I had a chance to play professional basketball for six years in three different cities in the Netherlands. Okay. And then in 2016, I stopped playing basketball, kind of retired. I guess I thought I was done for a number of reasons. And then about three and a half years later, I had an old teammate phone me who had made the move from five on five basketball to three on three. 
And it was at that moment that he thought, okay, I think Ross would be a good fit for the program. And yeah. I initially kind of dismissed him, but he ended up giving me some information and things just really lined up. Almost one of those things that's yelling out to you to do. Yeah. And with the support of my wife and some, you know, serious thought and stuff, we went down that path together and it ended up being unbelievable. Yeah. A little bit of a hiccup with Corona yeah. and things being delayed a year, but to end up actually qualifying and getting to compete in Tokyo, it was, it's still kind of, yeah, like I use the word surreal, but yeah. I would have never even been able to fathom that this would have happened three years ago like it was not even remotely on my radar mm. wow. and uh, for something to come up like that and obviously it's accumulation of things I'd done throughout my life to build up I guess that skill set kind of mm. in five and five basketball yeah. but to do this kind of event at a higher level in a completely new sport was like yeah, yeah nothing but positives for me no kidding so when you played pro basketball in the Netherlands did your brother play at the same time as you because he played as well right he did. So he's two years older than me. He graduated from University of Calgary as well. He played two years in the States and then he came up and we had three years together in Calgary, which Aww, is awesome. That's so fun. Yeah. Did your parents move there as well? <laughs> no, they just traveled from Tabor all the time. Oh, wow. Yeah. But he went to Europe after he graduated. He graduated one year earlier than me and he played for four years. And in that four years, we actually had a chance in his third year and my second year to play together as well overseas. Oh, wow. So, so that cool. was like super, super cool. It was like a chance to play in university together. And then when the opportunity came up overseas to play professionally together, again, it was like mm. one of those things you're so thankful for and the yeah. memories we had. No kidding. It was like my fiance at the time, Carly, myself, my brother and his wife, Joanna, we all lived in one place and the Aww. city was called Nijmegen. It's like Southeast Netherlands. It was just so cool to share that experience with them. And the crazy thing was my younger sister who went to school in the States, she was playing basketball overseas as well, professionally in Spain. And halfway through the year, there was some dispute with contract and stuff like that. And she ended up deciding to just finish off the season with a Dutch club. And she was playing 15 minutes away from us. Oh, no way. So <laughs> once a week, she would like come over and we had this thing called like Tasty Tuesdays where we like have a family oh, meal so and like fun. try something. Again, it's like one of those things that you can't really write up. Yeah. It just kind of yeah. fell in place. Your parents probably love that you guys had each other out there. Yeah, I think it was good for everyone. Yeah, it was yeah. good for my sister, who the first half of the season was like a little bit stressful dealing with disagreements and stuff like that. Yeah. And then just for me and my brother to share the experience with her and to make those memories. It's like we still think about that. We're like, how cool was that? Yeah, oh, yeah. amazing memories. So how old were you when you grew taller than your older brother, Henry? And how mad was he? <laughs> I have to say that height wasn't the one that bothered him. I'd have to say when I ended up being heavier than him. So I was like definitely the late bloomer. He was like a man in grade 11 and like any younger brother, probably. He was like a huge role model for me. And he was the person that just kind of pulled me forward. And 10 seconds of encouragement from my brother would last five Aww. years, you know? So yeah. uh, I always looked up to him. Until you look down on him. <laughs> yeah, I know. And then I'd probably say around grade 11. I ended up growing a bunch in grade 11. I was probably 6'3 in grade 10. And then I was probably between grade 11 and grade 12. I ended up being about 6'7. And I wow. still grew about an inch after that. But I ended up being taller than him, which was a milestone. But the day that I'll always remember was like second year university. I came into university like really skinny, like probably under 200 pounds. And then over like two and a bit years, I gained about 40 pounds. So I remember the day I stepped on the scale in the weight room. He had stepped on first and he was like 239 or something. And I stepped on after him and I was like 239.5. Oh, you know? wow. <laughs> and I was waiting for this. Like it was building up for like the weeks after. And I turned to him and he's like looking there. He's kind of annoyed. And as I stepped off the scale, I like kind of hit him with my shoulder, you know? Like, <laughs> and he was just like, 
don't push it, you know? <laughs> was it the university diet of hot dogs and pizza? Is that what put you over? Actually, you know what the secret is? <laughs> what? Shake and bake chicken and craft dinner. Okay? That's, uh... <laughs> That's the diet of Olympians, is it? Yeah. <laughs> Early stages, yeah. I think I learned a few nutritional tips later on, but uh, <laughs> shake and bake chicken and craft dinner still has a place in my heart. So that's what helped you edge out your brother. So <laughs> yes, yes, you will accept sponsorship <laughs> from them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Cajun flavor in particular, very delicious. They don't have it anymore though. I can't oh, find it. Yeah. Really? That is an obstacle. Yeah. <laughs> However, will you overcome this obstacle? <laughs> Uh-huh. Oh, that's funny. If any listeners have any insight <laughs> on uh, where to find Cajun flavored shake and bake, yeah. you've used the word a couple times surreal. Can you unpack the surreal Olympic feels from this year? It starts with the way I try to frame things. You know, I try to not to live my life with too much expectation and not in a way that's like cynical, but more in a way that helps me be like thankful for the basic things. And I'd argue that all the things that are probably most important. And then when these other things come into your path and you get to experience them in the manner that I did, like unexpected and, you know, obviously within it, there's trials and tribulations that you go through trying to get to that level. But it just always has helped me be extremely grateful for something that I know hardly nobody gets to be a part of. And to have, I guess, the insight and to take part in something like that and to meet all those people and to see what their environment looks like. I think one, it allows me to make sense of the world in a way that maybe other people don't get a chance to because I get to see something at a different level. And then two, it kind of just widens your understanding of what's possible. And I think that's a really powerful feeling, you know, in terms of like who else in the world is like moving towards kind of these big goals what kind of organizations exist, what kind of elite body types exist, walking around the athlete's village to see all the different, you know, the whole spectrum of the human body or, you know, a big part of the spectrum of the human body being on display there and and the different things that people are incredible at. It's humbling. and It's just a reminder that there's so much out there, so much possibility, there's so much opportunity and that makes me excited. Yeah. With the three-on-three basketball, were you like average height or were you still taller or were you like short? compared to the other basketball players? <laughs> no, I was definitely one of the taller ones. Okay. So film through basketball is kind of like designed for, called like a tweener. So like in between like a, a big guy and a guard, because you kind of have to do a little bit of everything. Oh, okay. So I think the ideal team is usually kind of like taller players, but not too tall because there's so much mobility involved and so much speed and transition. And so I was definitely one of the taller people, wasn't the tallest or the biggest, but that was one of the unique advantages I had for sure. Mm. When did you first dunk a basketball and was it in elementary school? <laughs> Unfortunately not. <laughs> I could get, again, my brother was like the one who like walked the path before me and kind of showed me the way. He was incredibly athletic at a young age. I think he could already dunk in like grade eight. I don't remember dunking until just after my grade nine year was the first time I dunked. And that was a big deal for me. Yeah. But my brother was like this incredibly extraordinary athlete who, like I said, just pulled me along and like inspired me to... Uh-huh to be my best because he was just pretty mind-blowing with the things he could do physically. Yeah. It's crazy. He still laughs about it because he has some videos online and stuff that uh, we always bring up. But uh, <laughs> yeah, probably probably just, just after grade nine was the first ah. time for me. Wow. Okay. So now for a little segment called three-on-three basketball for dum-dums, such as me. Okay. Uh, yeah. So the court, is it less than half the size of a standard court? Yeah. Can you explain just like a little bit technically how three-on-three is different? <laughs> 
Yeah, no worries. So three on three basketball is played on a single hoop and it's not quite a half court, but it's, I'd say extended out to like where the volleyball attack line would be. Okay. I speak volleyball. Thank you. Yes. There you go. <laughs> so it's like, it's probably extended like 10 feet outside the three point line. So you have a little bit of space on the perimeter to move around, but it's a pretty compact condensed court. You either play to 21 or it's 10 minutes stop time. So I'd say the normal length of game is 20 to 25 minutes based on stop a play like out of bounds or fouls. There's a 12 second shot clock, which is half the length of a normal shot clock. So the possessions happen a lot quicker. If somebody scores, there's no stop and play. You just continue to play. So the other team can take the ball straight out of the hoop, pass to someone who's outside the three-point line. And as long as the ball is checked outside the three-point line, they can try to score. So whenever the other team gets possession of the ball, you have to check it outside the three-point line before you can then actually get it for yourself. exactly. So say, for instance, if I did a layup and you were guarding me, Julie, you would grab the ball in the net and you could pass right away to your teammate who's standing outside the three-point line and they could instantly shoot. I think I could guard you very successfully, Ross. Yeah. (laughs) That's one of the crazy things about three on three is like when I first started is you beat your person you beat your defender and you score a layup and you think okay good for me I just made a point it's only worth one ones and twos in three on three and meanwhile the other team as I'm releasing the ball to go on the hoop they're already running an action say on the other side of the court to open up a guy moving to the corner for a two-point shot and then they just pass the ball to that guy and he hits a two-point shot and now you're down a net of one point it's crazy the speed of the game and kind of the the tactic that way is completely different yeah are there four people on a team? Yep. So you have one sub. The crazy thing is, is usually when a tournament starts, you lock in your roster. So you have four players. If somebody gets injured, you can't trade anybody out. So you have to finish the tournament with no subs, which is like wow. unthinkable because it's so taxing physically. But yeah, you just have the one sub. So physical conditioning is like one of the biggest indicators of success for sure. Yeah. So can you summarize for us how you guys ended up doing in Tokyo? Fifth place, right? Yes. And just like highs, lows, highlights. Tell us. Yeah. So there's only eight teams that that made it to Tokyo. We ended up playing every other country once. So we had seven round robin games. And then the top six advanced to the knockout stage and number seven and number eight were eliminated. I think we finished third in the pool. So we played Russia, who was fourth place, or maybe Russia was third and we were fourth. And Russia beat us in the quarterfinals 21 18. Oh man, so, <laughs> so close. That was a little bit tough. Yeah. We had beat Russia in the round robin game when we matched up with them. I think we beat them 21 18. Oh. And I actually like the lineup. I actually like the matchup, but it's just the nature of three on three where anybody can kind of beat anyone at that level. We had beaten every team in the tournament at some point in some tournament previous. Yeah. So you knew you had a chance, like a legitimate chance at getting a medal. And the game goes by so quick that we're sitting there at the Athletes Village after we were eliminated and you're like it's over like I guess it's all done and you know you start to process it and and reflect Uh, despite you know maybe not achieving that last goal it was still an incredible experience to be part of so yeah and I mean you guys were all on the same level basically like another athlete we had talked to they say they could have 10 different races and every time there could be a different winner yeah totally even Russia once they beat us they were playing Serbia in the semifinal and Serbia was probably the heavy favorite out of everyone oh, yeah. and Russia beat Serbia 21 to 10 in the semifinal which was the biggest I think margin of victory oh. in the whole tournament which was like unthinkable so it just shows when someone gets hot or, or someone mm-hmm. has the confidence or however you want to call it, flow state yeah. and all those athletic terms but it's cool to see that that's part of sport right the unpredictable yeah. nature that's what makes it compelling so I, in some ways that's like you have to sign up for that when you play sport you can't gripe about it later you know it's like you have to tip your hat to them and be like yeah. That's part of the deal. And it was still amazing to take part in Tokyo. It was unreal. 
that. Yeah. Oh, wow. You've had quite the experiences going from small town Tabor all the way up to playing in Europe and playing at the Olympics. What are some of the helpful pieces around mindset for a healthy athlete? Yeah, that's a good question, Merle. I'd say a big part of my success or my ability to play as long as I did, I think it goes back to connection, which I said at the beginning of the podcast, but anytime I was thrown into a new community, a new city, a new club, I really tried to make an effort to get to know the people around me. I really tried to make an effort to get to know the city that I was in, the culture that I was embedded in. And I think that provides kind of like an insulator to, you know, the stresses and anxiety that come with living overseas and and being away from friends and being away from family. And at times doing long distance with my wife, Mm -hmm. I really don't think that I could have walked that journey alone. And I kind of knew that either instinctively or because of my parents that made the experience so much more rich. I talked about the spectrum of experience and to, to meet new people and to try new things and to widen your perspective and understanding of the world is like one of the coolest adventures you can go on, you know? And I know you don't have to travel to a different geographical place to do that, you know? I mean, that's the gift of books and, and the internet and people in your community mm-hmm. living your life through their story as well. But like to do it in like a way where I actually physically got to go somewhere on the other, other mm-hmm. side of the planet. <laughs> I think there was like power in that, you know, it really twists your mind in a way and like opens you up to new things. And that I think connection and community were probably the biggest insulator for mental health for me. Nice. How did your timeline work with playing pro in Europe and going back to school to become a teacher and then becoming a teacher and also training to be part of an Olympic team based out of the Netherlands? (laughs) Yeah. So I was 28 when I stopped playing five and five basketball as 2016. And one of the main reasons for that was me and my wife had done quite a bit of long distance up to that point. And she was always incredibly supportive. And every year we kind of made that decision together about, you know, whether I was going to play for another year or not. And I'd gone to the point where I think perhaps the risk was too much. You know, I think at some point you have an internal, you know, sensor Mm. with something that is valuable. And in a way, I'd say as fragile as, as like a really intimate relationship. I think you have to be discerning and that's not easy to do. But I kind of sense like, hey, you know, I'm not going to risk this anymore. And also there's another part of life that I'm looking forward to. And I thought that was the right moment to stop. And that was really difficult for me. But at the same time, I felt really good about the decision. That was 2016. And then I came back to Canada kind of thinking about what's the next step? What am I going to do? You know, there's this big void that Mm. kind of defined a big part of my life and my identity for so long. And that was very challenging. But I had the opportunity probably two months later, again, a really random opportunity came up. I applied for a position to be a sales rep for Molson Coors. So a Ooh. beer company in Southern Alberta and this position where you kind of travel around. And I was like, Oh, I get to connect with people and have a marketing undergrad degree. So I could hopefully distill some more knowledge about sales and negotiation and promotion and stuff. So ended up getting that job. And I was the rep here in Southern Alberta for about a year and a half. And there's definitely a lot of positive things I took away from that. But I realized probably a year in that this wasn't something I wanted to do long term. A lot of traveling, the lifestyle of the job didn't always fully align with my goals and aspirations long term. Mm. And that being said, I still got a lot of the opportunity. I got to meet a lot of great people. I learned a lot about myself. There's quite a bit of responsibility on me, even though when you think like a beer rep, you don't think of that difficult of a job, but it was very challenging for a number of reasons. So I stepped aside after about 18 months. I told them, hey, I'd like to go back to school here in Lethbridge to become a teacher. So I left on good terms with that company, went to U of L for an after degree and was able to get my education degree in about a year and a half Oh wow! since I already had an undergrad. That led me to complete several practicums. Mm -hmm. It was at the end of my schooling that I was contacted by my ex-teammate. 
I think it was in October or November, and I was officially graduating and completing the whole program that December. He pretty much brought this offer and opportunity to me, and I talked about it with Carly, and you know, we kind of made a list of things that would have to happen for this to work. And I talked to the manager of the program and said, hey, I couldn't come till January because I need to finish my schooling. This is my priority. They wanted me to come right away. But at the end of the day, they ended up agreeing to all the terms and stuff. Wow. So I headed on January. At the time, I thought I was only sacrificing kind of a half a year of experience to try something like this. And then I would be able to teach the following fall. But because of Corona, it ended up stretching into about a year and a half. And I spent three and a half months in Amsterdam from January till, I guess, end of March in 2020. And then I came back during the pandemic for a bit, went back to Amsterdam that summer for about two months. And then during that kind of lull during the pandemic, I had signed a teaching contract to teach at LCI because I was unsure about the Dutch program and whether the Olympus were happening. And I had to, you know, worry about my own future and, and my own career. So then I came home and I taught for half a semester. And again, very fortunately, the administration saw the value in me taking on this experience. And I obviously framed it in that way as well to say, hey, this is going to make me, you know, a better teacher, a better member of the community here, a better member of the high school. And they gave me a leave of absence. I left second semester, went over to Amsterdam again, trained, qualified, and then, yeah, got to play in the Olympics and was back in Lethbridge second week of August to... To teach, so it was a little bit of a blur. (laughs) Yeah, it was a little bit of a blur. I think I feel every week a little more adjusted, but the first couple weeks for sure, I was wouldn't say burnt out because there was a lot of positive emotion. But yeah. it was nice and comforting to be able to turn things down a bit, mm. to find some type of rhythm For sure. of normalcy. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever normalcy is in the life of Ross Beckering. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I swear, I like a pretty basic guy, pretty simple, simple routine. So, at what point did you know for sure that you were going to Tokyo? That was one of the difficult parts. So the program that I was taking part in, I'd say we probably had about six or seven guys that legitimately had a chance to make this final four roster. And it was really competitive. Again, this is something you sign up for sport. There's no guarantees. Mm -hmm. You kind of have to put yourself out there a bit. And sacrifice is a key word for any athlete, I think for any individual. But I didn't know for sure that I was going to be going to Tokyo until about less than a week before we left. Oh, wow. Yeah, (sighs) I had a good feeling. Earlier on, like I kind of knew, you know, if I was healthy and fit, I thought, you know, just from a confidence perspective that there's a really good chance I would make that final four. But I ended up suffering two different injuries during the training period right before Tokyo. I sprained my left ankle and I was out for about three and a half weeks. Oh, no. Came back for about two weeks and then I sprained my right ankle and I was out for about five weeks. So I really had some annoying, frustrating Mm -hmm. kind of like pauses in my training. And again, it's not to make it too big of a deal, but it's just the rhythm of of sport and the Mm -hmm. time period that I was operating in was so tight that I knew that this was kind of putting my spot at jeopardy. And luckily I was able to get healthy enough to make the roster right at the end. But uh, even when they announced the final roster, probably three or four weeks before we went to Tokyo, there was still some turmoil within the team. And my position was challenged in a way because of some protocols. And there's a player who had played in another tournament when I was injured Mm. who thought he had the right to be in this position. So there was some interesting chemistry Mm. challenges. And uh, again, these are things that you can just like learn from and and absorb and and they tell you a lot about different personalities and Mm -hmm. conflict and all that. So I tried to like wade through that in a way that I could be proud of. And that was really taxing for me mentally, if I'm honest. And then Mm -hmm. to finally know the week before we go to Tokyo that my spot's secure, that's where I'm heading. 
that's what I need to mentally, you know, prepare towards. Yeah. In some ways it was a little bit sad because it's like, this should have been the case several weeks earlier, Yeah. but in other ways it was incredible relief. And I still at that point felt the support of the program and my teammates and, and the coaches. Yeah. So the key to getting back in fighting shape after your injuries was craft dinner and shake and bake. Yes. <laughs> no, I think I would have been back in two weeks if I had craft dinner and shake and bake. <laughs> I wish I would have had that. It would have been uh, a little bit easier. When you're in your trials and tribulations, when you're in a difficult moment on the court, when you're feeling that heaviness, are there words you speak to yourself or what is your North star? How do you find your way through those tough times? Framing things is super important to me. So like when something does come my way, taking that pause to interpret it in a way that benefits me the most is like a really important skill I've tried to develop. So whatever does come into my path, trying to have the awareness to see what the positive kind of side of that situation or obstacle or difficulty is has been like really, really valuable. So for instance, like injuries, the idea that maybe other parts of your body have a chance to heal, the idea that you might be able to connect with your teammates on a different level or exemplify what it means to be a teammate who's on the sidelines. Mm. Even just the idea of you have to go through a certain level of difficulty in order to like gain the confidence of yourself. So it's like understanding mm. that discomfort is directly connected to growth. Yeah. So I think that's like key is like, if I'm uncomfortable, there's a good chance that something good is going to come out of this. Like I always think of that quote where it's like the fruit grows in the valleys, not the mountaintops. Right. Mm. And it's almost like the gift of a challenge or conflict or an obstacle. And that framing is mm -hmm. super, super important to me. Wow. That's amazing. That is yeah. the core technique of cognitive behavioral therapy. Maybe the next time you need a career switch, you go to psychology. Yeah. CBT. CBT. <laughs> it's done in sport and to live that life and to achieve these things, we need to check, is this a helpful or a hurtful statement? And in that moment, yeah. if you're, if you're injured and you catastrophize and say, this is awful, I'm not going to make the team, right? All those awfulizing, catastrophizing versus, Hey, there's an opportunity. You're switching it yeah. from an unhelpful to helpful. That's an amazing technique and it actually takes practice. So I'm glad to hear that you've worked on that and, and put time and effort into it. I think I've been fortunate to have a lot of really good mentors and influences in my life. I think the idea that like your perception really determines what part of the world opens up to you too, right? And if you can frame things in a good way, again, like buffers or insulates you from those challenges that inevitably come. So it's like, if you can see a little more light than a little more darkness, that's only going to allow you to like persevere and be more resilient. What I perceive in my life is strongly influenced by how I frame things and what my expectations are. So I'm sure you are an inspiration to so many, including your students. Who are your main inspirations? I think a lot of people have influenced me in my life in a very positive way and made me who I am today. And I tried to like, you know, I think you can learn from every interaction and every conversation, but some of the biggest role models would have to be for sure my father. Mm. He was such a good example for me. He was so supportive, so encouraging. He also knew the importance of discipline and, and structure. And I think he walked or embodied that life really well. And then I'd say, you know, the older brother as well. I think him being two years older than me, my older brother, Henry, like I said, was, was a little bit quicker to mature. He had a two-year head start, so. He did, but I think just leading by example mm -hmm. and, and even the way he interacted with people and he has this joy and this passion for life and he has this mm -hmm. mixture of intensity, but also like this childhood energy awesome. that's just like so awesome. I was talking to my wife about this the other day. When I was younger, I think my brother was definitely one of those people that more stepped into the world and engaged with it and, you know, a little less fear and a little more curiosity, a really strong desire to kind of like do and to experience. Mm. And I was often more 
contemplative and more observant and a little more shy. And I think he really helped me see the value in kind of stepping into things and being uncomfortable and to stepping into the unknown and trying new things. And that's been something that's shaped me you know, mm-hmm. my whole life. And like I said, 10 seconds of encouragement from him mm-hmm. was good for five years. So yeah. I think those probably are the two biggest ones. But then, you know, I could go on about my mother and my sisters, my mm-hmm. wife. There's been basketball coaches and people in the community who have stepped into my life and pushed me in a positive way who I'll never forget. Mm-hmm. So the list is really endless. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't know if this is just a rumor. I remember hearing many moons ago that one of your sisters was the soccer body double for Blake Lively in Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. Is this true? So it's not my sister, oh. but my cousin. Okay. If it was your sister, I was then going to ask if you had a personal relationship with Ryan Reynolds and Blake Lively. And then, you know, the natural progression from there. Introduce, yeah, we please. Just, we, just, we just had some aviator gym last night together, you know. Yeah. Just, uh, <laughs> you guys hang out on the reg. Okay, tell them hi next yeah, time, just, okay? Just a, normal, just, a, just a normal Friday, you know. <laughs> the Beckrings, as an extended family, are quite a shockingly athletic group. Your dad, how many siblings does he have? And were they as involved in sports as all of their kids seem to be? My dad, yeah, had a really big family. He had six brothers and six sisters. When they immigrated to Canada in 1959, my father was eight. My father's position, like right in the middle of 13 kids. So all 13 kids at that time with their two parents, 15 in total, took a boat for three weeks and came to Canada. And at that time, they had very little money. And it's the traditional immigrant story where they kind of build up from the bottom. And they were sponsored by some farmer initially to come over and worked and lived on his land and then pooled the money and so on and so forth. So as a child, I think they were all pretty energetic and they kind of learned to, you know, be part of as many different, I would say, like communities as they could. But at the same time, there was a lot of expectation to work on the farm and to raise the siblings, especially the older ones, had to help raise the kids. So my dad was involved in sport, definitely. He played a lot of sports growing up, but it was not an emphasis at all in their family. At the time, the priority for the family was not sport, you know, and the parents understood that and it was just too much going on. Then he went to university and I think my dad was involved in a lot of different programs. He went to military college Uh and he kind of played a whole swath of different things there. I think when they're younger, it wasn't a point of emphasis. I think they were just like active and eager and energetic. And if they had a chance, they would do it. But I think often they missed practices and and had to work. So I don't think it was like a generational thing. Because they could form two full teams with subs. Right, like just with the yeah, exactly. soccer team, you know, base, baseball, <laughs> football. They had all. <laughs> so, of all the Beckerings, you're six foot eight. Are you the tallest Beckering, or are there taller Beckerings? I have a cousin that's about my height. I'm one of the tallest. How tall is Matthew? Matthew's about six seven. Oh, is that all? <laughs> yeah, he's only he's only six seven. So the summer between grade ten and eleven, that's when he shot up too. Like I think he, literally a foot. And I remember yeah, coming in yeah. and seeing, and I was like, whoa, what happened? I had to like crane my whole <laughs> neck back. <laughs> yeah, what it happened to like, it's, it's mm. pretty interesting to, to go through. So yeah, but I'm definitely top three, I think tallest. So, okay. Did you experience a lot of like actual physical growing pains? So I was very tired. My older sisters would always joke with me because during those periods of growth, I would sleep so much and I would argue rightfully so, but it might've been a mix of, uh, you know, laziness sometimes too, but they would call me like corpse. So, because I would just be passed out. Like I was like, sometimes I'd be so tired playing all these sports and, you know, living a normal, whatever life, whatever that means. 
and then going through this huge growth spurt so during those periods I just remember being very tired but luckily not in a really like hindering way but my dad told me that some of his siblings when he was a kid some of his sisters some of his brothers really had periods where they had to stay home from school for a week or two like growing pains and lethargic I think I got lucky that way, maybe a little tired, but I don't remember ever being like unable to go through my day or something like that. Yeah. And how many fridges did your mom have? <laughs> we, I also say that to her, I'm like, how did you like manage? Really, it's one of those things as a kid that like when you get a little more awareness when you're older about what your parents did to get you where you are today, you're like, how did you do it? Like we ate so much yeah. and you had five kids and especially me and my brother and it's nuts. I still... I'm like, yeah, you need to sit me down and walk me through this because I don't know how. (laughs) I hear from you a lot of gratitude, a lot of love for your family that you speak so highly of them all the way through the lessons your dad has taught you, your mom, your family. I'm interested now you are going to be a father. Mm -hmm. What are your feelings towards this new stage in your life? This is something we've always wanted. I've always wanted to have my own family and then to find a wife like Carly was unbelievable. And now to have a chance to have a child of our own. The initial feelings were like super excited. And now as we're kind of getting into like the third trimester here, definitely, if I'm honest, it's like equal mix of excitement and kind of fear. I think that's a normal response. You know, I try not to like fight it. I think in a way, maybe that does justice to like the responsibility that's ahead of me, you know, and I think that is perhaps the biggest, most important thing that you can invest your time and energy in is your family. So I think rightfully so I should be a little bit scared and intimidated and I'm stepping into a world that I have no idea what's going to be required of me going forward. And that's, again, like reframing it. That's like cool, right? That's like what adventure is, you know, as Mm -hmm. I'm teaching English this year. And it's like, that's the idea of story, right? It's like pushing yourself and stepping into the unknown and Mm -hmm. and trying to like wade through that chaos and figure out who you are and, and what the world means and what other gifts are out there. Being a parent is going to be like so rewarding, so taxing, but like, I can't wait. Like, I'm so excited. And it's like, I don't know what I'm excited for. but <laughs> It's going to be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so is this going to be uh, one of 13 or not following in the footsteps? <laughs> I always joke with my wife. I'm like, yeah, it's just nice. Like, get started. Like the first one of like seven or eight, you know, and then she'll be like an earshot distance. You know, and she's like, what did you say? <laughs> and she sees no. it all the time. She's like, no, I'm not doing that seven or eight times. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll start with. Yeah. and be thankful that hopefully this yeah. all works out in the next couple months. Absolutely. Yeah. Fatherhood is really, really interesting to kind of step into hopefully in the next little bit. I love your reframe there, right? That, yeah. yeah. And, and then also the permission, the permission to be slightly afraid and nervous and excited in all of it. And that is preparing you to be the most prepared you can. The fear of, hey, if I don't prepare for this, if I'm not present, then maybe I won't be the father that I want to be. So it helps prepare you and get you ready for this amazing next stage. And then the hero's journey of going through the trials and tribulations, the difficult times, those moments when it's hard, but also to find your grit, your resilience to get to the other side of that. It's beautiful. Yeah. And I remember like I was reading something a couple of weeks ago and the main takeaway was like, there's no courage without fear. Right. The Mm -hmm. idea that like, if you're scared, that's actually an opportunity to like assert yourself and build yourself up and to reaffirm things that are important in your life. Proportionally. So if you're super scared or super intimidated by something at the same time, that's like the opportunity to display like an act of courage or an act of trust or faith or however you want to frame it, you know? So it's Mm -hmm. like, you ask for these moments to step into because they can be like defining, but then at the same time demands a lot. 
and it comes back, I guess, to community and support and connection and having my wife there with me and my family around with me and my friends at, at school and the staff there and to share this with them and how happy they were when they found out Carly was pregnant, how cool Aww. that feeling was. To tell my students, like to tell my grade nine students, like, hey, my wife's pregnant. Aww. And like, it's my first kid. It's due in January. And hopefully you guys in February, March will be able to meet him or her. It brings me lots of happiness. Oh, oh that's Ross. amazing. Yeah. You just you yeah. just won gold. That was a gold nugget. <laughs> <laughs> like that. Forget the Olympics. This is uh, it's podcasting. That's podcasting where it's at. <laughs> and English teacher. I mean that that you was all the boxes, Ross. Jeez. That was, that was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I love that lesson. If we can help share that message, that's the point of this podcast. That's what we try to do and when we're sharing this message. And it sounds like you embody this in an amazing way. Yeah. I'm so excited for you to be an educator, to teach this to your student as a father, as a friend, as somebody who advocates for sport and wellness and community, you're doing so much well. And we are so grateful to have had you today on the podcast to share your wisdom with us. Thanks, Lowell. And I just want to say too, one of the things like I mentioned earlier in the show, I think you guys as a couple have been like a shining light for a number of reasons. And I think that has real value today, but also just your story, Lowell. I particularly have a fondness, I think, for all my students, but especially some of the, you know, the younger boys or men. And I think the encouragement and the optimism that you bring to them and the role model that you are, that really like has a place in my heart because it doesn't take much. You know, when I think about things that influenced me when I was younger, you know, 10 seconds from my brother, one person from the community that sent me a message, an email, one fan that took me aside after a basketball game and just breathed some confidence into me or... Mm -hmm. You know, a sister that encouraged me at a moment when I was in the moment of doubt or, you know, it takes so little oh, to have people that understand it like yourself and acting it out. And it's like, yeah, that inspires me, too. So you guys are uh, very much a part of why I continue to try to do the things I do. Oh, well, thank you're you. way too kind. Thank you, Ross. Yeah. Thank you for those words. That is part of why we want to do this. The little Lowell that struggled with bullying and struggled with that future of being blind, future of seeing no hope and worth and value. Those little moments, like you say, that one person who could see some meaning, that coach, that mentor, that pastor, that friend, that family member, somebody in that moment to show some kindness got me through some really dark times. And if we can be that for somebody else in our life, I mean, that's, that's what this is all about. Yeah. And it brings a certain meaning to your own life in a weird kind of selfish kind of way it's like the best thing you can do for yourself right i always think of like reframing selfishness in a way that's also good for everyone because if you're your best self you can also help people yeah yeah exactly do you have anything that you're promoting or anything like that that you want to shout out no i just encourage people to like not underestimate the value of like encouragement it doesn't have to be a lot it doesn't have to be intimidating I think one of the coolest things as a teacher is even if you go through a six month lull where maybe you're not proud of the way you carry on through your days, yeah. you know, the day after that six months, you can wake up and you have an opportunity to influence someone that day. Yeah. So it's like, you get like a reset. It doesn't take much. You probably will never know 95% of the time, the influence mm -hmm. that you have, but just step into people's lives. And if you have a chance to help, that's a gift. Yeah. You know, if you can help someone be aware of that, step into that, even if it's messy, even if you fumble around or look foolish, it's like, Mm. That has a ton of value. Wow. This option that you have to be there for students. I remember three teachers very specifically, and I've had many great mentors and teachers, but these three lessons that I learned, one teacher in elementary, she was always saying, do I hear mumbling and complaining? And she really helped us focus at a really young age to, to do that reframing, to move it into a positive way to see this world and to see what we could be adding to instead of the negativity and pointing out the negativity in the world. So from a young age, learning to reframe into optimism. And then another teacher 
he was the phys ed teacher and he had to adapt the school sports for my brother and I who he were going blind. He didn't have to, he did. That's true, he didn't yeah, have to. He just did. He, That's he, awesome. he took that on himself to say, hey, Lowell and his brother, my brother Landon, we couldn't see the birdies in the, in the area. So they painted the gym, the, the whole, whole gym, gym. To try to make the contrast better so they could maybe see the birdies. That influence stands to this day, right? Yeah. Like obviously yeah. it's very vivid in your mind, so it's... yeah. yeah. The accommodation, and I think for teachers to try to accommodate different aspects of learning disabilities, of abilities in sports and other things, can we help with this inclusion that we can all play and live together? And this was another lesson I learned from my teacher in elementary. And then a last one, a teacher that said, Lowell Taylor, that's a pretty special name. I think you're going to do something special one day. Like just that moment, like you said, that tiny moment, I, I remember to this to right now, have tears in my eyes, like that teacher taking that moment to just say, you're going to do something special in a moment when I was feeling really down. So the power totally. of words, the, the power of encouragement, you're power speaking of to. teachers. That's awesome. Well, yeah. Well, you keep doing you, Ross. You're doing it right. Well, I try to let my students in on my mishaps and, and <laughs> foolish moments, and that's fun too, you know? Yeah. They, uh, they get to laugh at me. I got my teeth knocked out uh, oh. a couple of weeks ago, two front teeth, and I showed them some nice pictures of that, so they were they nice. had a good laugh. I looked pretty monstrous. <laughs> Did you just plug them back in? or? <laughs> uh, it's a long story, but I had I got them knocked out 10 years ago, and they were oh. so they were fake, but then I got elbowed in the face and then I had about three days before I got them fixed so I was the toothless wonder the six eight toothless wonder on the street so <laughs> don't mess with that dude it's not as cute when you're not eight hey <laughs> the power of perception and uh, assumptions everyone that saw me on the street assumed the worst probably <laughs> all I want kidding. for Christmas is my two front teeth yeah, <laughs> early Christmas present <laughs> oh your hero or one of your role models was Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan was a huge, huge role model for me. Like any person, it was good for me to see at an older age that he had his own flaws and inadequacies, of course. I think that's even more powerful sometimes. Yeah. He was a huge role model. Like that's yeah. also from athletic perspective, the power that you could have on someone younger by just embodying a certain way of being, you know, and his competitiveness and his attention to detail and his desire to win and be his best. I'd say like being his best, that would probably be the biggest takeaway. I'm watching The Last Dance again, that Michael Jordan, like uh -huh. actually right now I'm on episode eight. Oh. So I'm like going through it again the uh -huh. last like couple of weeks. And he's still like, when I hear the Chicago Bulls intro, my nervous system goes crazy. Uh -huh. So it's uh, yeah. Michael Jordan for sure. Awesome. Uh -huh. Awesome. Amazing. Thank you again for your time. This was super fun. I really enjoy okay. your mindset, your laughter. Yeah. This was, this was an You're amazing good. conversation. You're a good guest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity and all the best, Lowell. I know thank you're you. training for a number of different events and I know Tokyo was on the horizon for you and it's too bad that it worked out, but I'm sure life will throw some amazing things your way because you always seem to bring the best out of the moment. So good luck with everything, both of you, Julie and Lowell. <laughs> thank you, uh, Ross. Awesome. You too. And uh, we can't wait to hear about the baby. I know. I'm pumped. I hope we bump into each other. If you see a tall blonde guy, you say hi on the street. Okay. Good. If you see a blonde girl with a 200 pound St. Bernard, call me. That's me. <laughs> I, I will. I will. Anyways. Well, nice to meet you, Ross. Have a good weekend. Take care. You too. Bye. Oh my goodness. He is amazing. Ross Beckering, local boy. Had these big experiences around the world, but the, the lessons of mindset, right? This ability to reframe the hardships into positivity. He was able to do that in sport, in the disappointments, the trials, tribulations, the obstacles. He's doing it as a teacher, and even now in the new adventure of becoming a dad and reframing the fears. It's pretty awesome. That was a great episode. 
as he was talking, I was kind of mentally making a checklist of all the things that would make like a perfect human. He checked all the boxes. Mm. Carly, you're a lucky woman. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And, and sounds like he's a lucky man too. Yeah. I'm really excited to see the educators that are teaching our kids that he is in there in the schools connecting to children in a way that helps them become the best versions of themselves. The power of teachers, the power of mentors, the power of coaches. I mean, this giving back, it sounds like he was poured into by his family, his community, his friends. So it's this reciprocal growth and development that we continue to have these people before us, our parents, our families who are pouring into us. And then we can take those lessons, distill them, and then now pour into others. Yeah, he's amazing. Another local hero, you, Lowell, I'm just realizing this is the first time we're chatting with our dear listeners since you competed at Road Nationals. Yeah. And how many gold medals did you win, Lowell? We were able to come home with the two gold medals. Two out of two. So this was the first time I was able to win the National Road title. It went very well. It was awesome to feel strong and powerful and to get to the top and to respond to all the attacks and then to... Yeah, be the hammer and make sure that we win that sprint and and get to the line first. In my very unbiased opinion, I already knew that you were the best Canadians, you and Ed. But it's nice that it's now an objective fact. And also for all you dear listeners, if you would like a little treat for your eyeballs, just check out our social media where I have taken the liberty of zooming in on Lola and Ed's quads for you. They are very impressive. You can go see it for yourself at Julie Lolcan. <laughs> we had the uh, opportunity to have a nice pump of the legs. They were, yeah, nice The and lighting full. was just right. The contrast. Good lighting. <laughs> yeah. So it was all, all in all a good experience for the, for the quad show. <laughs> and the, the, the optimal item for, for new cyclists is something I had to learn. Apparently, you get on the podium and, and you have to flex. So um, that's a, it's a good lesson you learn, too. There's, I guess it's not a podium unless you're flexing during the picture. So. And if it's a Canadian yeah. one, then you also have to drink the maple syrup that yeah. you've won. So we won two bottles of maple syrup and able to drink that from the podium was pretty <laughs> awesome too. He didn't drink it all. He brought some home for us. So. Absolutely. Bring it home. <laughs> yeah, Bring it home the maple syrup. Bring home the maple syrup. So really amazing time trial road race. We were able to get the national titles for that. And now our race objectives are to get prepped and ready for the track nationals. They'll be in November. So track nationals hoping we take the pursuit and kilo And then we'll be qualifying for the world championships that will be in March. Uh, Speaking of track, I believe there are a few young ladies who are next-gen track athletes with Cycling Canada who have really good taste in podcasts, eh, (laughs) Lowell? Shout out out to all of our listeners out there. (laughs) And I was able to hear from my coach that we had some listeners um, that were on the track team and also getting gold by the way yeah rocking it so we have amazing teammates all around and i can't wait to meet you all so if i'm ever at an event please come up and say hi which again a couple of you did during road nationals so we had a couple people there holly came up and said hey listen to your podcast love it so thank you that that's awesome yeah you know i think the word of the day today Ross brought it up and said it a lot. Surreal. (laughs) That was very surreal. Another thing Ross brought up that I think is helpful and uh, the challenge to everybody who's listening to this and made it this far in this conversation, (laughs) thank you, is to reach out and encourage, right? Those moments of even the thanks for us to do this podcast. That's what we're fueled on, maple syrup and encouragement. Um, We're not making money at this. This is just something we want to do and and give back. It's a passion project. It's a passion project. So the encouragement to continue is awesome. So if you want to I mean, we wouldn't turn down money, but... (laughs) <laughs> yeah. 
if you want to continue to uh, fuel us with encouragement, that's awesome. Ratings and reviews and all that, but more so, yeah, just sharing these stories and the challenge that Ross gave and the challenge that we're going to give is to reach out to somebody today and this week and give some encouragement. That little moment, even just that 10 seconds can change the trajectory of their life or, or even make that moment a little sweeter when somebody's in a dark spot. So please reach out and encourage those around you. Awesome. Thanks for your time. All right, y'all. Take care. Bye. Bye. <laughs>